Rio de Janeiro. With a big man. A warm welcome to you. This is Frio de Janeiro, and my name is Abid Imam. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a big thanks to you for listening and following the show. I really do my best to produce episodes as regularly as possible, and sometimes the inspiration just happens to be serendipitous for a well-suited guest. And that's just who we have for this episode. My manager's Dan Ryan and I were recently invited to a Olympic Games Tokyo local breakfast run by Olympics Unleashed. And an athlete who presented her story at this event was Natalie Burden, a Australian professional basketballer who competed at the Rio 2016 Olympics. She's had a career that's rich with experiences and learnings. She's wonderful at articulating her perspectives. So I invited her for a conversation And it was a big thank you to Amy Sarandopoulos from the Australian Olympic Committee for helping make this happen. We'll get into it. I wanted to say a big thanks for supporting Frio de Janeiro. Let's jump into it. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me on Frio de Janeiro. And just wanted to run past how we actually met each other. Serendipitous, which is a great word, but... About a month ago in the southwest in in Bunbury, you were delivering a presentation for Olympics Unleashed. And as an Olympian yourself, it was amazing. So tell us about this program before we get into it. Yeah, uh, Olympics Unleashed is actually uh, all organised through the Australian Olympic Committee. And it is a pilot program in WA, but something that's been run over in the other states for a while now. Uh, but still pretty different to what they're doing over in the other states. So the aim of it is essentially getting people, athletes, not necessarily Olympians, so there's also um, emerging Olympians, um, just getting athletes out into schools in all areas of WA, metro and regional, um, to share our story with the hopes of uh, those kids learning from it and applying it to their own lives with the broader understanding that it is not just about sports. So we're not trying to connect only to these school kids um, who play sport or about their sport. It's about what can um, they take or what can we give them from our journey as athletes that we learnt through sport and um, get that message across to them so that they can apply it in all areas of their life. And the base, that basic message is that... Um, Athletes or Olympians are normal people, so you can be an Olympian too. And that if you can find a passion to just be the best that you can be, apply some resilience in the goal setting, which are key themes we talk about, then who knows what you can achieve. This is a great chance to dive into your journey. What are your memories of junior sport, early days? Hmm, Yeah. Uh, I think about this a lot and I ask my parents about it a lot, like, what was I like when I um, was 13 years old and running up and down the court? Because now I work with a lot of athletes that age and um, it's interesting to try to see what I was like and knowing where my journey took me in the end. But uh, what I remember from those days is just enjoying it and not, um, like I wouldn't say I loved basketball. when I, I started when I was 12 uh, and I played just quite uh, organically up the levels, but I did always want to be an Olympian and never thought it was going to be possible, but I thought that was the coolest thing ever. 
And I think that was kind of guiding me without me realising it so that when I was just playing sport when I was young and in those junior levels, it was fun and I was like, oh, what, what can I achieve in this? Not ever with that, oh, my gosh, I have to, like, work extra hard because like, if I want to be an Olympian, then I've got to um, train every single day and all that kind of stuff. It, it just happened organically and naturally through wanting to, to see what my best was but also enjoying it and being with friends and, and, and loving competition at the same time. It's really fascinating with seeing elite athletes and what sports they started off with as a, as a junior with that sports sampling. So what were you doing? What were you immersed in? I was playing, I think, every sport, like through school. You just get exposed to so many different sports. But I had a lot of sport outside of school, um, surf club, swimming, uh, you know, I got into netball at the same time as basketball, so I was playing both for a while. But always active, always had to be active, could not sit down still, um, was always fidgeting and stuff like that. And just growing up in with a family that always wanted to be active as well, and I had two sisters, so we were always doing things. Um, and I look back at those times now and I think that that's really important that you just get out there and you, you try all these different things. And I'm really glad that our, our school, is, school system's like that because... I loved hockey and I wouldn't have tried hockey if I hadn't gone to school and they made us do it. Um, well, the same as cricket or footy and I'm terrible at footy, but I got a, a little touch of it and I think that that's really cool. I love that. How are you on a surfboard? <laughs> I can um, stand up for about one second. That's uh, one second longer than I can, so that's good. <laughs> I'm not, I never devoted any amount of time to that, but it was just always something we did in the summer, like go down to the beach with Dad and, um, you know, he would push us into the waves and we'd try and stand up. And then obviously with the surf club training, uh, it, it was incredibly daunting when we were doing it, but now I feel really confident down the beach and a lot of my lifestyles around the beach. So, yeah, I'm cool that I, I picked up those skills along the way. That's good. Now the basketball skills, what do you remember of first holding a basketball, shooting at those hoops? I can't remember the first time, but I played with my friends and I got put into it because I was tall. So, you know, there was a mum knew that I was smart enough to recognise there was an advantage there. And my coach was my um, school friend's mum, uh, who is actually now my team manager and in one of the leagues I play, which is kind of cool. Uh, and I just remember there's a photo of me uh, I saw recently, it, and it would have been during that first season, and it was a team photo and it, it was just after we played a game and my face is like a beetroot. It is bright red <laughs> and I look utterly exhausted. And I was talking to my parents the other day about it and they were like, there would be games where you would just run yourself into the ground and not like not collapse, but not be able to do anything after it because you just, you went so hard. And I used to do a lot of little athletics. And um, I remember the first time that I ran the 800 metres. So like we normally run the 400, you know, one lap and it's it's tiring, but it's okay. And I, it was the first time I'd ever ran the, the big girl race, the 800 metres. And I, my dad was watching and I just remember like blasting out of the blocks and like sprinting. And then I just got over like three quarters away through the first lap and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, hmm. I died. Like, <laughs> I went too hard. And so I think that that sums up um, a lot of my early playing experiences was just going out as hard as I could and sometimes that not being the best, the smartest thing, but just wanting to get out there and run and have fun. Who were your heroes? Definitely my parents. So 
a bit of a weird upbringing. I don't remember being exposed to basketball, like on TV. Um, I didn't have any heroes in basketball until I got a little bit older and I learned about Lauren Jackson and, and those kinds of people. But I looked up to my parents because they were always very active and probably my dad more than my mum just because he was an Australian um, sailing champion. So he understood, you know, how you had to apply yourself to get better at something and, and the kind of work ethic that took. And he was always supporting. My, both my parents supported me, but um, I just probably gravitated more towards my dad because of the messaging he was talking to me about and he'd always give me pep talks and that, that kind of stuff. So always really tried to just make them proud and happy and, and do what um, the advice that they gave me, which was always very, very um, humble advice. It wasn't ever pushing or I just with the work that I do with a lot of athletes now, you see some parents, that, you know, they, they want their kids to be superstars and they push mm. and push and think that they know a little bit more than the coaches. And, and my parents didn't ever feel like that to me. So it was quite, yeah, it was quite nice. Um, but noteworthy is that I did love watching the Olympics and I did do remember watching Kathy Freeman and Ian Thorpe so much growing up and they were my idols. They were like the coolest people and they were champions. So, yeah, a little bit of sporting but also probably more so my parents. Mm. Yeah, it was amazing growing up and having the Sydney 2000 Games at oh, home yeah. and how inspiring that is. So you can only yeah. imagine what Brisbane will be like for that generation. Yeah, and you don't know who's watching. Like, the, and I think about that a lot with the Boomers game um, at Tokyo. You don't know what kids were watching that and are like, oh, I want to do that. That's cool. Like, that's that's what I love. That's inspiring. It was amazing those montages on Channel 7 of people watching at home and the young kids watching yeah. at home and how they were trying to emulate the high jump and yeah. uh, the relays and things. It was hilarious, but <laughs> yeah, really cool. You then progressed through the ranks of basketball to get to the stage of getting into the college system. Mm-hmm. So what's it like as a young person to actually pack up your bags and head over to, you know, the big smoke, the, the USA for to pursue yeah. your dream? Yeah. Uh, a lot of things went into that decision. Um, I had been invited to the WNBL Perth team, which is a pro league in Australia. Um, that they, they were called the West Coast Waves back then, I think or maybe still the breakers, not sure. They've gone through a lot of name changes. Almost sound um, like a surfing team, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, and so I've been invited to try out and I was, okay, I was always someone who would try out even if I had no expectations. I've always had very low expectations of my abilities, which has hurt me a lot. But um, so I, I tried out and I kept getting, you know, selected into the next stages of this as a development player. Um, and I had just previously said, no to a college to going over to college uh, I decided to stay home and study a year of physio um, but I know that in my heart that the decision was because it was made out of fear because I didn't want to leave and I didn't want to it was such a daunting thing to go and live on the other side of the world and get into that college environment which seemed really scary um, so I put that off for a year and then, but I was in the meantime training with this team and it came to the point where it was starting to look like I was going to get offered a contract. And if I signed, then I wasn't ever going to be able to go to college because I would have been a professional. Um, so I think at that moment I was like, actually, I don't want, this isn't, 
this, I, I wanted to get better before I went into the league. And I knew that the only way to do that was to go away to college. Um, that was going to provide me with four years of intense basketball training and that was going to make me better. So that was probably why I made the decision to go over there. But um, it was always still full of so much fear. Uh, and I remember getting on the plane, leaving and just sitting in the airport before I got on the plane, like bawling my eyes out. I did, did not want to go, but I really felt like I had to because I was chasing something more. So that has always interested me looking back because, you know, just because a, a decision we're making is full of fear and um, there's that element of doubt and it's scary because it's new and we're going to be pushed and uncomfortable. I think I learned in that moment that that doesn't matter. That doesn't, it's not a reason to not go and try something new or to not go and push yourself. Um, so, yes, it was hard and horrible and a really testing time for me while I was over there, but I know that if I hadn't gone, I wouldn't be the player I am today. Yeah. Tell us the college you were at and also what were those first few days like? I mean, you're an Australian from Perth, one of the world's most isolated cities. And were there any other Australians who was there to sort of be that support early on? Yeah, so I went to West Virginia University and they are a... Uh, a big school, but in a small town, so in Morgantown, West Virginia. So without the school there, you know, that it's just a, a tiny population, so it's a, a true college town. Um, and I went there and made the decision to go. I chose that place because they were a bit more bigger than another school I'd been offered, um, and I knew that because they had a Walmart, so I'd actually just Google. <laughs> okay what place looks better not like whose basketball's better it was hard to find any more information than that I didn't go on a visit before I went so I was like okay well this place has a Walmart so I think that they're a little bit more like up and coming uh more to do so I went there um and as soon as I got there it was okay a couple things I think as an athlete going to another country and having a team already there for you that's something special and that makes your life a lot easier. So when I hear people who go, who who quit their jobs and they leave everything they know and they're by themselves and they go to another country, I admire them because that you've got to create your friend base, your support network from scratch. But I went over there and I went into a team. So I had automatic teammates um, and people there to help me. And they do look after you over there. They have people who are organising your class schedule for you, who are driving you around to get everything you need. So they looked after me. It was just really hard because it's always going to be hard. It was a new life. And although I had those teammates, I had to make friends um, amongst those teammates and outside of those teammates and in my school and everything. So um, the first probably... The first three months were the hardest and some of the hardest of my life up to that date. Um, then the first, the six months in total would have been also very, very hard. It wasn't until after that, those six months that I actually realised, oh, okay, I'm enjoying this now. So it was a very hard thing to start with. You end up having four years in that system. Do you feel that it, it eventually helped you with your career to actually go through these we say resilience, but go through those formative experiences. Yeah, it, of course it helped me. And, you know, when people ask, like, do you regret anything in life? And the cliche answer is like, no, I don't regret anything. Well, I don't regret anything because I am fully aware of how every experience I had over there helped me. 
yes, a lot of those experiences were incredibly hard. And, um, you know, if I had made different decisions, if I'd chosen a different place, if I had gone over more confident in my own abilities, then my experience would have been different. But I think, you know, you can't change that. And because of um, those experiences I've, I've had, it it did get me better basketball-wise, skill-wise, but it did also, it did hurt me with my mindset and my mental health. So after that, I had to, uh, you know, work harder on those areas and that it had a long-lasting effect on my career, which is um, something that I've only started to be able to work through and move past over the last maybe four or five years of my career. But I now am in a spot where I'm moving away from playing and um, mentoring other athletes and working on people's mindsets with them. And I know that if I hadn't gone through, through those experiences, then I wouldn't be able to help those people with those what, what, what they're going through. So fully grateful for every experience I had. But I, I want to be real with everyone. College is bloody hard and it's not all roses and glory. And um, if you go over there, you've got to be prepared for that, I think. Yeah, society has shifted in the last decade or so around the conversation about mental health and we saw in the recent Olympics. So 10 years ago, how did you lean into those experiences? What was, what did that look like? Yeah, um, there was minimal support. There were, I did see a sports psych when I was over there, but just for a little bit. Um, and, you know, if I could do it again, I would have stuck with it longer. But, it, you know, the support services weren't really offered. It, sports still has this huge stigma around mental health and it was definitely um, obvious over there where you were punished, uh, you know, physically, men, uh, mentally, emotionally, if you showed any sign of weakness. And there would be coaches in on the training court who they made it their goal for that training session to break someone. And they thought that breaking them would make them stronger. And so they think that they're moulding people into strong women and strong men. But that's not, that's not the way to do it. Like that's, that's an old school approach and I think we're past that now. Back in that day we were still kind of a bit stuck in it back in that day 10 years ago. It's not that long. But um, we're still trying to fight those stigmas and break those stigmas. But, yeah, so I, I struggled through it and I would call home um, I'd have to wait until the time was appropriate because of the time difference and I didn't have a mobile phone for some of it, so I was on a pay phone and um, the people that you're so used to having is instant access. They weren't instant, so you had to. You were alone a lot. I was isolated a lot. But, um, yeah, the sports site helped a lot and then me having friends outside of basketball helped a lot. So I relied on my friendships um, that I made heavily and that was how I made it through, those friends, yeah. Later on in your college career, you, you you actually got selected for the Australian Olympic team and the the Opals. So there was that silver lining uh, of your time there. Tell us what it's like to actually be notified that you're going to play for Australia. Yeah, I wasn't selected until a year out of college. So I'd come home and I was playing professionally. But I was still, you know, pretty much in that headspace of that I had been at college. Um, but my call-up to the national team was a little bit weird but interesting. Um, I, I was on holiday with one of my friends from college was visiting and I was on holiday in Perth, uh, no, in Australia, 
And I got a call to join in for an Australian university try, uh, team tryouts and I couldn't because I was on holiday. So I said no. Um, but then I got another call up as for an emerging opals. So the emerging opals was the, is the junior people who were earmarked for potentially um, one day making the Olympic team but aren't quite there yet. And the, at the same time that that camp, which I said yes to for that one, um, that camp was running was at the same time that the opals camp was running and they were side by side. So they were quite, you know, that it was all the same, very similar. Um, and I was on that court on, with the Emerging Opals training and uh, the coach would go back and forth and he had been watching my court and he liked what he saw in one drill or maybe a day, I don't know, and then he asked me to go and um, demonstrate on the Opals court. So then the whole entire team of the Opals squad and then all the Emerging Opals athletes are watching this demonstration of the next drill we're doing and this is like my moment and I remember being out there just like just make the layups just just run hard just make the layups like that was kind of all my my thought processing was so basic in that moment like get ball make layup run hard <laughs> just do whatever you can to, to I didn't even know if it was going to be my moment to shine or not but it ended up being my moment to shine and I stayed on that court for the rest of the squad and then I found myself going on my first tour to China with the squad and then I made every team after that and every um, tournament um, for the next four years leading up to Rio. So, yeah, kind of crazy how it started. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah, get ball, <laughs> lay up, make shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 move arms. Like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. And then the Rio Olympic Games came up and you, mm. you're in the team. You were talking in the breakfast about how there was that competition to actually make sure you're getting in the team and the camps and and what that scenario was like. So tell us about the intensity of, of that and that uncertainty of even making it too. Yeah, very interesting dynamics uh, on these team. You know, you're, we would have camps and leading into Rio, the, probably two years leading into Rio, there were more camps, so they ramp it up a bit because it's the biggest um, competition so we would have probably camps every one to two months each camp goes about seven to ten days and you're in a different spot all around Australia sometimes these camps are tours around Europe so you're away for two weeks playing and training and you know that at the end of that camp someone's going to get cut someone's going to make it or someone else is going to be brought into the next camp who wasn't available for that camp so that's always in, in everyone's back back of their mind. And every single one of our first trainings on every uh, at every camp was always like back to all of us were under 12 girls um, at our first tryouts, like, you know, all nervous and trying to remember how to dri dribble the ball and shoot the ball. So it was kind of like, oh, everyone's like really nervous, um, which was nice to see that at least you weren't alone. But um, the dynamics, yeah, because we were competing against each other, but also you had to um, work as a team on the court, but also you lived with everyone. So I was sharing with um, different people each tour, but sometimes they were your competition in your direct spot on the court. Um, and I'm a deep thinker and probably an overthinker. So I would be thinking about all these things and it was pretty awkward. And um, I let that affect me on the court. I think it was hard to, to leave everything off the court as I stepped onto the court. For me in those days but yeah very interesting dynamics of competing but trying to work together at the same time and trying to make this the olympic team 
the biggest thing in my life it was, the biggest vision I'd ever had. Um, so I felt very, it took every ounce of me to stay mentally and emotionally composed for mm. a, a while there, yeah. You eventually made it, which was which is amazing. So you overthought uh, correctly. Yeah. <laughs> but Rio 2016, now we, we look back and at the moment when we're recording, it's five years ago. How do you reflect on that experience knowing, you know, it's the last Olympics the way that we we knew it, how it was, where people could mix together and you have crowds and you have the colour and Tokyo was so different. So how, how do you look back on it now with that hindsight of time? I look back on it with a lot more gratitude. Uh, I think when I was in the village in Rio, we had some teammates who'd been to London and they were comparing the two. And they were like, oh, my gosh, like London was just so much better than this. Like we would be getting this and this and, you know, all of this was beautiful and that kind of stuff. And it dampened my experience having been, I was kind of like, oh, is this not how it's supposed to be? Like is this not good? And, and then there were obvious things where it wasn't good, like the flushing of the toilet situation, the food situation. There was a, the getting to event situations. There were a lot of stuff that I was like, yeah, this, this is probably not how a normal Olympic game, Olympic game should go. But now getting the opportunity to look back on it and compare it to the struggles of in Tokyo of not playing in front of crowds, not being, not having your support network, the people who helped you the most, who it's not a, you don't go to Olympic Games by yourself. Like it takes it a family and it takes more than that, a, a community to help you go and to not have them there supporting you but also celebrating with you and being there for the lows, um, I that would have been incredibly hard. And so I'm grateful that my experience was what it was. I had all my family there. I had that, oh, I just realised the first, my first coach that who's now my team manager, she came. Oh, cool. She was like, sure, I'll go to Rio. Why not? And she was there throughout it all. Um and so it's it was beautiful that 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 was a big part of my experience was that when I could could get out of the village and and go and have dinner with my family in the streets of Rio. Uh, so yeah, I think that I look back and I, I feel I feel feel for those Tokyo athletes because that is a big part of the Olympic Games. Shed some light into some of those experiences. I know you had the opportunity to walk past the hero that you mentioned earlier. What was that like and, and those opportunities that you get as an athlete to to be in the village? Yes, it's the most surreal thing being in the village, uh, getting to line up for dinner behind, you know, NBA players and famous tennis players and we everyone's fangirling when, when we are there. Like all the athletes are the best athletes in the world. Uh, in their sports and yet they'll be in the dining hall, they'll see Usain Bolt and they'll want to run over to him and get his autograph and photo. Like, and I, I like that because we everyone recognises um, the struggles that you go through to be an athlete, but those struggles are relatable for everyone. It's not just those struggles don't just happen on the court or on the field. So I think that's why people can connect so well to athletes and to the Olympic Games. Uh, but in that village I did, as you mentioned, get to see Kathy Freeman and I did meet her and, it was a good experience for me because, yes, she was had been my idol. She was my inspiration from 11 years old. Uh, and, but I was also at the stage where in the village it was hard to escape. So 
I felt like I couldn't recharge. I was always constantly surrounded by people and I was struggling emotionally and mentally with that um, because I, I wasn't, I never considered myself as an extrovert. I would, I labeled myself. Um, and then, and I was kind of like creating a theory in my mind. Like, if you want to be a good athlete, you have to be an extrovert. You have to be like, have that ego and be loud and, um, dynamic to meet people and stuff like that. And I, I didn't feel like I fit that mold. So um, seeing Kathy Freeman for that first time, we, we were with it as a team and we all were like, oh, my gosh, Kathy Freeman, can we have a photo? And she was like, me? me? Like, you want a photo with me? She was so humble and um, so quiet and shy and I loved that because because I was in that headspace where I was like, oh, there's something wrong with me. I, I, I shouldn't be here if I'm like this. Um, seeing the greatest athlete in my eyes of all time uh, who was potentially similar was like, okay, Natalie, stop stop going down that path. Like just be you. Um, you don't have to be anyway. Yeah, so that was good for me for, for a lot of reasons. Have you seen the Naomi Osaka Netflix documentary? No, I've seen um, the ads for it, so I've got a bit of an insight. She's very introverted uh, and very similar, but it is on my list of things to watch for sure. Yeah, it definitely gives you an appreciation of the human behind the headlines and the just those flashing lights of the cameras and the you know the press conferences and just the type of person she is isn't conducive to those environments. Yeah, but she still gets out there and, and performs at a high level. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that's... interesting, isn't it? Like you, you can be the greatest, not the greatest, I'm not saying she's the greatest, but a fantastic tennis player and uh, be so good at your sport. But just because you don't want to talk to media, it uh, like you can't compete or mm. it affects, obviously that effect of our, uh, how it affects us mentally is so strong that it can affect everything else. So it's an interesting story of hers. And it's really interesting because it's an individual sport and the types of questions that she fields are really cutting deep into her and her game. And it it does plant the seed of doubt that you just don't need sometimes. Yeah. So you can empathise, you know, if she's getting ready for a massive match and the day before someone asks her a question about a part of her game that she's working on and, yeah, yeah. it can really get you. Just, yeah, just I touched on it earlier, but in that space leading up to Rio, like it took every ounce of me to just function um, when I wasn't at camp. I had to recover and, and get ready to go again. I felt like a shell because I was just in, during those camps so much. I felt all that in, um, intense rivalry, but, you know, all those tensions. Uh, and I was so focused on making this big goal that you just, you're so open to um, any persuasion. So, yeah, I can only imagine having that much media attention and having a, a, someone asking me and planting that seed of doubt that it's that it's like a fertile ground right there because you you're, um, already have your own doubts. You don't need other people to plant them again for you or make them grow. We're so good at, unfortunately, having our own doubts and um, growing them ourselves that, yeah, it's just tough. It's a battlefield. Mm. Our minds are a battlefield at times. When you're in an uh, Olympic village where there's so much uh, stimulus in terms of all of these things going on, how did you have coping mechanisms? What did you develop that helped you through that? Yeah, I uh, got really good at putting my noise-cancelling headphones on. <laughs> I knew that I needed a long time. I've known that that's just who I am. So I tried to, yeah, utilise that uh, 
blocking out all my senses um, as much as I could when we had downtime. Uh, and I also very, uh, I love to journal. So I would write a lot during those times of just what was going through my hair, what I was struggling with. Um, that was probably really helpful for me. And I also reached out to my support, my friends and my family again, that they always support me and offer that their support in those times. To get really specific on the journaling, is it a ritual that is done at the same time every day or when you just feel you need to? How do you sort of do it? It is now, but back then it was just when I felt like I needed to and I tried to do it every day. Um, sometimes I would miss days because sometimes there were things that I didn't want to confront, um, which I think is a big barrier for a lot of people to journaling. It can be quite confronting. Uh, but nowadays I do have a routine every morning. Um, I have a little routine and I journal every morning. Uh, and if I don't get it done in the morning for whatever reason, I do get it done every day. That's my goal. Um, and there are times when I do miss it, which is um, not the goal, but that happens. That's life. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen the uh, advantages and how much it helps me so much so that I make sure it is a routine for me. It's in there every day. While we're on Rio as well, something I just wanted to talk to you about that seems really interesting comparing Rio to Tokyo was how Australia didn't have a medal target for 2021, Tokyo. And it seemed like this Olympic Games has been really successful and everyone is really energised by the Olympic team and Paralympics on right now because we we almost didn't have any expectations. We didn't formally say we're going to win so-and-so gold medals, whereas with Rio, that was the last Olympics where we did have you know a, a publicly stated tally and there just must have been that pressure. But I wonder how it, how it permeated to yourselves and, and your mm. team. I didn't know that about the medal tallies, but having heard it just then, it makes sense of my experience of Rio because uh, we didn't win a medal uh, like every other Opals team had done before us. And I felt that expectation going into it. I didn't feel that expectation was um, too much. Like it felt, yeah, we, we were had a great team. Yeah, we were strong. We should have won a medal. But after it, I guess I felt that expectation that we didn't meet. So I really, that did permeate to us because it came from, you know, the legacy of the Opals of being so successful and we felt like we'd let them, and I'm speaking for others, but I guess I can only speak for myself, I felt like I'd let down all those other Opals and teams before us and that legacy that they had created. Uh, I let myself down because it was a goal of mine to win a medal. And I let my team down because that was also our, our team goal was to win a medal. And I let Australia down. That was probably the biggest, like, yeah, it's amazing playing for your country and it's something special. It truly is. But when it, you don't feel that you meet their expectations, it can be devastating. And that you, we don't, you know, that's not nice. That's a, that's a whole nother level of, um, yeah, unmet expectations we're putting on ourselves and failure essentially felt like we'd failed I felt like I'd failed the country so pretty pretty yeah massive um to be feeling like that so it was dark yeah I know you don't think this now but don't ever think that because you are one of 3,000 odd Olympians that have ever been able to represent our country in the the greatest sporting event in the world so never ever feel like that 
Yeah, it took a while for me yeah. to not feel like that. But yeah. um, I do, yeah, you're right. I don't feel that now, but thank you. I really appreciate that. No, no, no worries. Uh, I, I do want to um, zoom in on what it's like after an Olympics because you played in front of crowds and you get that sort of that high, that adrenaline, that rush, and then all of a sudden you go home and it's quiet and there's this come down. What's it like for a, a massive event like the Olympics? Those, you know, the the anticipation and then all of a sudden you go from 100 to zero. Mm, yeah there's a lot of uh, athletes talking about it at the moment which I think is very good because the mental health struggles after such a big tournament like that they're hard and I feel for those athletes who had to go into quarantine lockdown uh, quarantine to be alone for two weeks um so following that yeah that massive high and then it's just suddenly poof gone and you're like oh like what am I now I was I devoted every part of me to making this team and I made it. And then I devoted every part of me to winning a medal and then we didn't. And so what am I left with now? And I think that's where athletes stumble because everything goes into that performance. We don't ask ourselves what's next. Or if I win that medal, who does Natalie look like after that? If I lose it, who does she look like? What is she? Who is she? So a bit of an identity um, crisis goes on for a lot of athletes. I felt also, though, a lot of relief because of that environment was very stressful for me. So there was also a bit of relief that went along with it after that it was all over and I could, uh, I'd broken free of it. Um, but probably, yeah, the biggest thing was like, what do I do now? Like I can, I did play again. I probably shouldn't have um, gone straight into a season as quickly as I had. I only had 10 days off. I should have had a lot more than that. And my coach knew it, um, but we didn't do anything about it. So that's another lesson I learned. And that it heavily affected my whole performance that year. But, um, yeah, it's, it needs more athletes talking about it. It needs more actual steps taken post-event. Because mm. it's almost like athletes are thought of as robots or as human beings that – need rest and, you know, for players to be at the top level, you almost need to reduce the quantity and increase the quality of, of matches. And we see it in soccer, for instance, where these players are playing every three days, you know, for a matter of months and it's, yeah, yeah, injuries. So yeah, yeah. builds up. When you were in Rio and you finally finished, you got to, did you get to enjoy the beautiful city? And I'm asking because this show is, inspired by the experiences that I had personally at Rio 2016 and and that type of thing is a beautiful place so I was wondering if you did get to break the shackles of the the village yeah I did so because we finished earlier hey look at the bright side we got more time in Rio and we could stay in the village and uh, I, I I left every day for the whole day and I hung out with my family and we they'd already done a lot of Rio because they'd been there for the um tournament uh, but we did, like, I didn't go up to Christ Redeemer because I'd already done that when we'd done an Opal's tour there earlier in the year, but that was amazing and I absolutely love that. Um, and, yeah, we got to see a lot of the sites, but I was just a little bit annoyed. We'd, I didn't get to see any other events. I got to see the Boomers play, but I wish, because that's such a big part of the Olympics is all those other events that you can go and watch and support. So, that's a bit of a regret that I have of, of not going to any of the other events. Just it was hard to get around. As... Ah, okay. Was it was it also a ticketing issue? Like they're all sold out or? If no, you... we, 
we were probably able to get tickets, but it was like takes two hours to get to this event. And they were really discouraging us to leave the village, especially by ourselves. So it just logistically, it wasn't the easiest. And I oh, oh, probably don't didn't feel like in that, that stage to be around other sport. <laughs> I think I wanted to break away and just be with my family and, and see beautiful Rio and immerse myself in that a little bit more because it did feel like we were just like transplanted into this which is literally what we were into this village and we didn't get to experience it. I still don't think I experienced it. So probably have to go back there and go with someone who can, who can be my tour guide and, and show me around and do it right. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of tour guides. Uh, Frio de Janeiro has con- contacts with there, so I can sort you out, <laughs> Natalie. But that's cool. Uh, wanted to, you know, talking about travelling, You've played in Germany, you played in France, you've won um, championships there. I'm really fascinated by you've now played, fo- um, not football, you played basketball at a professional or really high level in three different continents. So how did you find the European experience and the, that culture around basketball? Europe for me was some of the best times of my career. It's where I learnt to uh, play because I loved basketball. I, I actually found out what I love about basketball in Europe, and that was five years ago. So I played a lot of basketball before then without really ever loving it and understanding what exactly I loved about it. Uh, but I that was forced upon me to figure that out because going to Europe, you go to a country where they don't speak English. So Germany was the first one I went to, and um, my area, their English, you know, that they did not, they knew how to, but they wouldn't quite often like the people in the shops wouldn't speak English to help you out or so it was quite isolating in that and my coach English was his third language so that was pretty <laughs> broken uh, luckily all my teammates spoke English and I really we had a fantastic bond and I came late halfway through the season for my first experience over there so I went into a team who'd already been playing together for four months so but luckily the team was really nice and I uh, we all bonded quite quickly so that was that's what gets you through when you're playing in Europe is the, the the team around you. And it's hit or miss. You don't really know what you're going getting into before you go over there. But my experiences have always been really good. So that I've got to, I think of my times in Europe as um, traveling and immersing myself in the cultures and, and living in these foreign countries with a lot of basketball on the side. But definitely I realized that I was there for more than just basketball. What's the genesis of a move to a European club? So are they are there scouts who are looking at Australian competitions or do you seek out to them? Just really interested in how that yeah. the, the mechanics of it. I have a agent and so it's always something that you talk about with your agent, like, oh like should we go, should I go play in Europe? It's an option. I always wanted to because I love I wanted to go and experience something new. Uh, and so yeah, uh, your agent gets in contact with clubs over there and being on the Australian team for four years and going to Olympic Games, you get interest. So people, that's how people see you and also going to college, you get interest there. And also my mum's British, so I have a British passport. So that also now makes me more uh, attractive over there because I won't take up a restricted spot. I'm a local. Uh, Yeah, so that's kind of how all that happens and I don't actually phone call and give phone calls to the clubs and I say, hey, do you want me to play for you? It's all done through my agent, which is makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of thinking of um, 
uh, anchorman. You know, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, that's how they find you. Okay, easy. <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's really exciting. And to actually win a championship in the German top flight, like how do you compare that to your other achievements? And, and what's that level like compared to those other places you played? The German level is pretty strong. So it's not the top. You know, there's a couple of countries that are the top in Europe that are renowned as the top, but the German level is um, pretty good. Like it's in the middle, it's quite strong. Uh, And so that to win a championship in that level is amazing. And it was the first one the club had never won one before. Um, We went undefeated by one game for the whole season so it was like a special season for us and that's just so rare and now as I come towards the end of my career I look back at the championships I've won and you know I think it's maybe seven like so it's not many when you play for 20 years you don't actually get to win that many championships and so it it makes me put like or makes me realize hey every single one is important and it's special that I got one over in Europe that's kind of unheard of for for an Australian. So, yeah, I'm very, very proud of that one. And coming back to uh, Perth now, it must be amazing. And and tell us about this work you do with athlete mentoring. It's Is it mainly with basketballers? Who are, who are you working with predominantly? Yes, the, the business is called Enriched Athletes, so it's not just basketball players, but uh, obviously that's – I am a basketball player and I and then just – I already do some coaching outside of um, with individual coaching. So it's just natural that I've got mostly basketball players, but I do uh, work with a couple of netball players, done some swimming before. So it's not restricted to just basketball um, and it's an area I want. It should be for everyone. It is for everyone. So I want to branch out with that too. But it's all just come from my own lived experiences and those struggles that I've touched on today and what I learned from them. Um, and with the passion to help other people realise that you can learn so much from sport because it's just what you struggle with in sport, you're going to struggle with outside of sport, but it just comes up maybe a little bit more, you know, um, in front of you in sport because you're a bit more exposed and your performance is judged. So all those fears and those doubts, they, they, they're right at the forefront. So that is essentially forms what I talk to my, the kids about and the clients about. The ages range. I see you saying kids, but it's not just kids. It, it goes up to um, professional athletes as well. So, yeah. There's a number of tools in, in the toolkit. Like you mentioned journaling, uh, mindfulness, um, looking at mindset. There's, there's quite a few things you can do. So how do you choose or select what's best for uh, to prescribe to an athlete? It's is all very tailored towards what the athlete is struggling with and they have to want to do these two tools. So there are, you know, I have set it up so that I don't think the kids, the clients really realise what I'm doing. We all, I always set like in-game goals with them. So just like three things that, that they want to achieve from every game. But yes, it's that that means that they may achieve, they may get um, ten assists or twenty rebounds. That's and that's fantastic. That's their performance. That's what we want. But they're all. It's a tool as well to um, move away from distractions, external distractions, and internal distractions being probably the biggest, 
and instead focus on the moment. So what am I doing right now? What can I do? Oh, I'm going to go get a rebound instead of listening to my parent yell on the sideline or instead of listening to that anger in me that really wants me to rage at the refs and yell at them. What can I do instead? And that's what those goals do for them. So that forms the basics. It's all about, you know, how do we move away from the distractions and instead focus on what we can do in every moment. But then obviously if uh, someone says to me, I hate meditation, I can't sit still, I'm not going to tell them to go and meditate every day. I'm not going to say, if you don't meditate, then you will not be a good player or a good person. So it's like, okay, can we like do it once a week? Can we journal instead? Are there other things we can do? So I I make sure that it is very tailored towards each client. Mm. Really interested in the bringing the journey, uh, bringing the coaches and the parents on the journey too we we touched upon it briefly the importance of coaches knowing about and putting athletes at the center of their programs and also that that parenting that mindful sport parenting Mm -hmm. you know off the court you hear about so many players who leave leave the sport because of that drive home so yeah how are you trying to bring them on the journey as well yeah it's when we're looking at athlete well-being I don't understand why it's not at the forefront of every single decision that's made in the higher levels in a sporting organisation. Otherwise, why are we running? Why, why are you running a sports organisation if you're not going to look after the, the kids playing the sport? Are you there to make money? Well, unfortunately, a lot of teams are, a lot of clubs are to make money. But even still, if that's your driving motivation, well, don't you want better performance to have better athletes to get more money, well, then should you, you should still be giving what the athletes need in order to perform better. And athletes need their mental health to be looked after. Their psychological well-being needs have to be met, and they have not been. And that's why we're still having, we're only just like tipping the iceberg of um, the struggles that professional athletes have. They're professional athletes. They come from, I believe, our junior clubs, junior sporting experiences. We all know that kids learn faster and the way the things that they learn are going to impact the rest of their lives. So that's why I, I'm drawn towards working with um, clients in this the age group of 11 actually to 18 because that's when a lot of our fundamental, you know, beliefs are going to be put into place. Um, sorry, I've gone a bit off tangent with that one, but I just, yeah, it's, Understanding on top of that, then the people who are influencing kids in that in the, that ages, those ages the most, and that is coaches and parents. And I don't think, uh, unfortunately, with junior sporting organisations, they rely on a lot of volunteers and a lot of mums and dads helping out. That's how they're built. That's how that's how it works. But that doesn't mean that those mums and dads are equipped at or dealing with athletes or children they might not know how to do those things um so when then we're putting them in a position where they have such a big influence we want to make sure that influence is as helpful and holistic for that athlete as possible hence the um talking to coaches about their role as a coach and how and the actions that support and actions that thwart and hinder uh, your athlete's well-being same with the parents. How is you as a parent? Can you understand that you're there to support? You're not there to coach. And I think that line's crossed every single day and probably with almost every parent-child relationship. 
Um, so yeah, educating, it's just educating and um, encouraging people and seeing the impact that they can have. And let's make sure it's a good and a positive impact. When we think about young girls' participation in sport, can you speak to the importance of confidence? Confidence is, um, it's the easiest way to, obviously, it explains that self-belief. But I think it's thrown around a little bit too much and it always feel, it felt like for me, and I hear a lot of my clients saying as well, that it's like there's something wrong with me because I'm not confident enough. And uh, I've got all this potential. If, if I could just get that confidence, then I'm going to be perfect. Then I'm going to be whole. And I, I just don't believe in that. I don't think confidence is um, necessarily the key. But young females struggle with it more than males. And it is that I think it's, and it comes from more than sport, it comes in our culture of um you know, if you look at a female athlete compared to a male athlete in general, I'm very generalising right now, then the male athlete is um, less afraid to say how confident they feel or how good they think they are than a female because a female's worrying about all the judgments that her, her friends and her teammates are going to, that she's going to get from them. And she's worried when she steps onto the court about what other people think about her more so than the males. And so when you're now in a sporting environment and everyone's judging your performance because that's literally what a game is, is how well you perform out there for exposure. You know, if you make a mistake on the court, then all these people see it and all these people are like, oh, this is what you think. Oh, she's not a very good basketball player. But if you make a mistake and you're an accountant, well, you just press backspace and you press delete and no one knows. <laughs> so, yeah, as an athlete, you're, you, there's that level of exposure and I think that then ties into all those other ways that we, we bring females up compared to males and how that influences them on the court. Natalie, you're very mindful of your time, but before we go, I want to talk about uh, Olympics Unleashed, and that's the reason we're speaking today. Without it, we wouldn't have met, but you're now able to go into schools across WA. It's a fantastic program. You've you talked about it at the top, but bringing all these pieces together as an ex-Olympian, you're now able to share your story and inspire that next generation. Just tell us about that and, and how much it means to you. It is really, I feel like I've come full circle because um, for a lot of my career I was trying to find out uh, what there was more than just sport, more than just basketball. It always felt like an incredibly selfish thing to go out there and get my body uh, to its best, to its highest potential so that I could perform as well as I could. It felt really selfish and it wasn't enough for me. Like yeah. I was I was always trying to find that deeper, that purpose, that why. Why am I doing this? Um, I needed that and it took me a while to find that. But now I can see that sport, it brings so many people together and you don't have to play a particular sport in, in order to go on an emotional journey with the athletes, with the game. And I think that that's beautiful because now if you're watching um, the Boomers win their bronze medal and you've never watched a game of basketball in your life and you're a young 12-year-old kid, maybe you're going to go and play now. And maybe that's going to lead you to um, playing a different sport or maybe that's going to lead you to instead a different passion. It's got nothing to do with sport. And so that's why I think sport can bring people together and it can, you know, be a catalyst for a lot of change 
it can also be a way to learn incredible life lessons in a relatively safe environment. So although I just said before, like if you make a mistake, everyone's watching and that's kind of scary, it's also like, okay, you made a mistake, it's a game. You can, you know, it's not, it's not real life in that your mistakes in your real life can be a lot more, um, have a larger effect. So if you can learn them in sport, that's pretty cool. And then you can apply it to the rest of your life. And that is what Olympics Unleashed is doing. That's what it's allowing me to do. And that's why I love it. And, um, I will always be open to any chat, uh, about sport, about, the lessons that I've learned through sport, um, not to make me feel really good about talking about myself, but just to um, open myself up and be honest with my journey and story and struggles with the hopes that someone else can connect with it and take away something and then they go out and they learn it for themselves. So they they are inspired to do something else. And that's, yeah, I love that. It's important to me. Thank you and all power to you for the work you're doing, inspiring the next generation and future. Thank you very much for joining uh, me on Frio de Janeiro, uh, Natalie Burden. No worries. Thank you so much. It was awesome to have a good chat. And there we have it, a really enlightening chat with Natalie Burden. Some good news to share as well is that she's going to be embarking on a coaching career very shortly as well. Thank you for listening. Keep smiling, keep scoring.